but tell us about the common myths that people have about vintage jewelry. Mm. So people think that things which are over 100 years old or really old have a lot of value. They feel like it, it must be because it's something so rare that it's survived. And But the truth is, there are also a lot of mass-produced pieces that were done in the Victorian period. So not everything that is very old um, has value or, or has a, a high value. Welcome to Pass the Power with me, Paige Parker. I'm an author, advocate, tiger mom, and even claim a Guinness World Record for traveling the world to 116 countries with my husband, Jim Rogers. We up and left New York City 15 years ago to move to Singapore. Why? Because we believe Asia is the future and we wanted to immerse our daughters in Asia as well as for them to be fluent in Mandarin. Tamin Shaw, Hin Hao, Mama Shaw, Hu Hao. This podcast began during the pandemic because I wanted to offer conversations of hope. And as it evolves, I hope I do too. I'll dig deeper personally and give you more from guests as I continue to tap into my connections, sharing the most compelling stories to help you attain your goals personally and professionally. As a lifelong learner myself, there's little more I enjoy than exploring topics with our fascinating guests and sharing it all with you. So together, we may pass the power. As a graduate gemologist with the Gemological Institute of America, I know a real jewelry and gem pro, and my guest today, Brenda Kong, personifies this. We go way back to 2008 when we met in China at a Christie's Jewelry Preview. Brenda worked with Christie's for over a decade before returning to Singapore to open her posh vintage shop called Revival Jewels, where she offers delights from Cartier to Boucheron. Brenda will educate us, empower us to take risks, and talk the tea on some amazing jewelry collections. 2013, you started Revival. Mm. What's been your biggest challenge? What have you had to overcome? Mm. Um, I would say that uh, when I started, there was there was a little bit of, uh, you know, clients would come through and they'll say, oh, you know, how, sort of doubting a little bit the knowledge, like, because this, me being not very well known in, in circles or or clients who might say, but how do you know about French jewelry and, and, you know, how are you able to appraise all of this? And, um, what gives you, you know, the authority to say that this is X amount of value. And, and I think that, so the Christie's background has helped a bit, although people were still doubtful. I mean, thankfully today it's a bit better. I think I've, I've proven myself. I feel like a lot of the, uh, there was a lot of doubt. Do you think but, specifically it's because you're Singaporean and not Western. And yes, I think so, definitely. Uh, and now I it's think. so interesting because now all the money's in Asia, <laughs> and, <laughs> and everybody would believe you. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that that it's 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 hard to sort of associate. Yes, a, a, you know, an Asian woman sort of having that that ability to to appraise jewelry that's French or. Uh, from the 1900s. Did you really have someone say to you, how do you know about French jewelry? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't blame them. I mean, I, I suppose it's, you know, it's, you, you're spending a certain amount of money and you, and you, you don't know this person who's, you know, you're just coming through this shop because you, you heard about it. And yeah, so that was one of the challenges. The other big challenge, I suppose, when I started was really having that the traction in terms of getting people to to want to buy vintage. So the first few years at, at Revival, I, I, I did have to think out of the box. I, I moved to do more trunk shows in Hong Kong and Taipei. I think if I had just stayed in Singapore, it would have been very difficult. But um, I made uh, several trips in the year to visit some of my clients in, in Hong Kong and did trunk shows in, in hotel suites. So connecting with contacts that I had 
uh, previously at Christie's, um, that made a big difference. So I think relationships that I've had really helped at the, the early years. Um, that's kind of how it started. And, and I went into Christie's at, in October 97 as a trainee specialist. And it was mostly helping out the Hong Kong office based out of New York. Assuming yeah. as a flight attendant and then getting your certificate, Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't a whole lot of money in the bank account. No. Nope. So it had to be, it was a leap of faith for you to yes. fly to LA and hope that something like this would happen. Yes, it, it definitely is, is this was. something you would encourage the listeners to, to yeah. do something crazy like this? <laughs> I, I think that the, the, the possibilities and the exposure, I felt that yes, it, it, it's worth it because even if I didn't get the job, I did get to meet a lot of people through, through the interviews and also the, the experience of meeting sort of a senior director from Tiffany's, for example, as well. It was another interview. And so I feel like it was worth, not just because I got to Christie's, but yes, I would say sometimes these risks calculated, of course, are worth it. Just take as much as you can. And what about imposter syndrome? Because I know Mm -hmm. I've been a client of Christie's for some time Mm -hmm. and everybody who works there has such pedigree. And I imagine that you, you felt a bit of insecurity. Yeah. How did you feel? Definitely, definitely. I, I I still have a bit of imposter syndrome sometimes today. I, I feel that definitely when I arrived in New York, there was a great deal of um, insecurity. I, I, I did feel like, do I really belong here? It was a whole different, whole different world. And, um, and I think it was, it, it took me sort of like just trying to focus on the work and, and not get too caught up in in dwelling in that uh, in that sort of insecure feeling um, and and focusing on on working hard not not being afraid to work the longer hours um, I was also very lucky to have very good colleagues and my, my bosses were great um, but yeah it was definitely not easy at the beginning I think just you know trying to overcome that feeling of you know just this Singaporean girl who's flight attendant coming into New York and and rubbing shoulders with all these and people with, as you say, a lot more, you know, better pedigree. Once you get over that and you, I think it's important to build the strong relationships with your colleagues. It really does make a difference. And, um, and I feel sort of when you focus on what's important, the work and, and learning. And um, I had a great opportunity to, to see some amazing estate uh, that, that came through our doors. New York is really the place where the best jewelry comes through. You know, I, I tried to overcome that, that syndrome. It really was just the passion for the jewelry in itself and just trying to uh, focus more on that. Yeah. Nose to the ground. Yeah, yeah. nose to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I, I often tell people when this comes up is that pedigree may help you get a job, mm. but it will not keep a job. If you're not good at it. Absolutely. So if you come in and you're working super hard yeah. and somebody else is coasting, yes. obviously you're going to rise. And another thing that I always tell uh, young people is you were invited because they believe you're going to bring value. Mm, absolutely. So even if somebody else has better credentials and you maybe think that they're so much smarter than you are, mm. if you're invited to the table, there's a reason. Mm. And so show up and represent and and try not to feel less than, but that's, that's a super hard thing. (laughs) Yes. So you mentioned New York was the place to be. Mm. Could you tell us what are the highlights when we think about Christie's and Mm. actually for the, for the listeners out there, I should actually tell you (laughs) that Christie's is an auction house. Some people are probably like, what is Christie's? (laughs) Uh, It is an auction house, which sells um, 
jewelry, it sells uh, wine, it sells homes. I mean, everything there, collectible. Everything collectible. They yes. sell collectibles yes. um, through a secondhand market. And tell us the most exciting <laughs> estate that you worked on, jewelry mm. estate with Christie's. Oh gosh, it, I think it'd have to be Elizabeth Taylor. That's that's really a phenomenal one. I I, I don't think there's going to be another uh, jewelry collection that's going that's as amazing in in terms of another celebrity that I don't think there there's going to be another celebrity with first of all as many husbands who <laughs> as good as giving jewelry but how many also, does she have I think she had like seven seven if I'm not wrong yeah and, and one husband twice I think and yeah <laughs> yeah something like that <laughs> and they all were and excellent gift givers they, they all maybe not all but a good majority of them I think Richard Burton was definitely the best um, and, um, yeah. And so, so she was definitely up there. I mean, the lines, you know, the world tour, um, and the catalog for that, the there catalog. were actually two yes. enormous catalogs. Yes, that's right. Uh, you found, yeah. uh, yep. they, they were, they were beyond, beyond. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody wanted one. And it was like, you ran out of them, but yeah. So she, so it, you know, it wasn't just for her celebrity status, I think really she had a great eye and she, and especially with Richard Burton, I think um, the stories that come with each piece of jewelry that nobody has that. It's just amazing. The, the, you know, if you read her books, it's just, you know, oh, he gave this to me when I turned 50 or, you know, one day um, Mike Todd replaced her jewelry that was costume with uh, actual diamond ones and just surprised her. And she said, oh, my, these earrings feel different. What's wrong with it? And Mike Todd just chuckled and said, oh, I changed your costume jewelry to make them into real diamond earrings for you, which she loved. And so, you know, things like that, I think that's really hard to come by today. And, and um, but so besides Elizabeth Taylor, um, Ellen Barkin is, is also one that I, I remember. Ellen Barkin's collection of jewelry is also quite phenomenal. Her collection was amazing. And she, when yes. she divorced Ron Perlman, yes. she sold everything he'd ever given her. <laughs> yes. Because she was like, I want nothing from this guy anymore. And she, that, that auction did so well. She raised so, well. so much money. 21 million. Yeah. And if she had actually sold that, like today, I think it would be worth double. But, but it was also definitely a lot of money back then. And, and yeah, good for her. He mm -hmm. threw her out on the streets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Lily Safra. And Lily Safra as well. Definitely. That's another amazing collection. And it will went to charity. But she has such a beautiful, you know, uh, she had a beautiful collection of jar jewelry, but but also Cartier. And so, yeah, that was also another phenomenal one that I, that I had worked on. Engage with Paige. I've lived in Singapore for the last 15 years, and I am a loud proponent of supporting local brands. One I adore is Bind Artisan, helmed by my friends Winnie and James. Winnie is the granddaughter of Chan Ku Song who began a small bindery workshop in 1942. 80 years later, Winnie and her husband James have revolutionized the brand into an experiential retail concept with three stores in Singapore, online in Australia, with pop-ups in Manila and Shanghai. For gifting, their notebooks are unique. You may personalize with your paper choice, binding, and a word or quote on the cover to inspire. For the next month, mention Pass the Power for a discount when you shop at Bind Artisan Singapore. And before we talk about revivals, can you just tell us the most expensive piece that you ever sold at Christie's? Um, it would have been Lily Safra's jar Burmese ruby rose brooch. That was an amazing brooch by jar. It was quite large. What's interesting about that piece, it sold for about 4 million Swiss francs. Which is what in Sing dollars? It's going to be, I think, 
just under five, if I'm not wrong, sing. But yeah, so it it, it was interesting because we didn't real we didn't uh, have the rubies tested because with Ja it's Ja. You don't really, the certificate is kind of sometimes irrelevant. But it turned out to be Burmese unheated rubies, and that really sort of also. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for our listeners who don't know about Ja, could you just Joel Arthur Rosenthal? He's um, he's quite an icon in the jewelry world. He's basically uh, he's in his seventies now. He started as a needlepoint. He sold needlepoint in in Paris. Had a little shop, and and from there, I think he started to to make some jewelry, and especially around the eighties and up till today, he's still known as one of the most amazing contemporary jewelers because he was so ahead of his time in, in the craftsmanship, the de- the attention to detail, uh, the use of uh, gemstones that's not your typical type of gemstones that people would think about putting together. So he's really a, like an artist and he's been uh, called the Fabergé of today. His because pieces of his, sell at such a premium. Yes, absolutely. They go a bit crazy at auction, mainly because he's not so accessible as well. I mean, he, he doesn't make a lot in a year and He's a bit of an artist, so he he likes to to be able to sort of choose his clients. Um, I think there has to be a synergy between him and the client that's coming to him to commission a piece mm. or um, to buy a piece. So the people who ha- who might not have that access would would definitely get very excited at pieces that come up for auction. Well, I can assume working at Christie's, you were dealing with people with great wealth, and I wonder if you've watched Bling Empire. Yes, so we had we had Kane Lim on the show. Yes, and he's on Bling. And there was at the beginning of Bling, there was this story about Anna and Christine getting really upset over mm. like wearing the same necklace to dinner. Mm-hmm. Is this? I, I, I find it, it it's ridiculous. If you're told it's a one of a kind, that's one thing. But they they were never told it was one of a kind. They were just mad because somebody had on this necklace. <laughs> So, I mean, does this really happen? Is it that petty? I haven't seen it myself. That I, I feel like that's a little bit of drama. But yes, I, I suppose that there must be people in the world who are very conscious about, you know, the, what they wear to a, to and, and how they appear in public. But yeah, it would be more an issue if it was, if they were told it, it was, was one, one of a kind. kind. Yeah. Right. But right. otherwise, yeah, I feel, I feel like in Singapore, most people are not, you know, I think we're lucky that we're, we have cl- friends and, and people in society who are generally quite respectful. Mm. Yeah. You show up at a party and Cartier is on many women yes. in Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So why why did you decide to launch Revival Jewels? You have this great career with Christie's. Mm. I mean, you're doing extraordinarily well. I met you in 2008. Yes, uh, that's in, right. Uh, in Shanghai. Shanghai. That's right. I was a I was jewelry specialist and the, and the Shanghai rep at that time. Yes. And so I left Christie's at the end of uh, 2012 and um, I'd moved back to Asia because I, I had lived away in from, from New York to Paris, Italy, uh, Shanghai and Geneva. And when I moved back to Singapore in 2012, I, I really was feeling that I was missing working with vintage pieces. A lot of what you see in Asia tends to be very gemstone focused, very contemporary jewelry for the most part. And for me, that just, it just didn't, I just couldn't connect. It didn't excite me. And I I, I felt like I wanted to try and bring vintage jewelry uh, to Singapore because it was really what I loved dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So I decided to, to leave 2013 and and took a leap of faith I decided to to just give it a shot I I felt yes it was a great career and you know I'm doing really well but it was not what I love doing and um and I told myself I'd give myself three years to to start this business and if it didn't work out 
I could still go back. Well, what were your struggles? And specifically, were there any that were particularly difficult because you were a woman? when you set up the business? Yeah, I, I feel like there was definitely a lot of, was, as I was talking to my clients and my ex-colleagues and think, saying, you know, I'm thinking about starting the, this this business, just focusing on vintage jewelry. Many people were, were telling me, I don't think you can do it because there isn't that culture in Singapore. People are not used to buying, you know, secondhand as they would think about it, secondhand with it, or vintage pieces. There was a lot of uh, negative feedback uh, about starting the business. Um, and I, I took in their, their comments, but there was something that just kept telling me that I think I can do this. I'll keep my expectations low, you know, and try to try to build based on, on my own beliefs of what I feel, you know, Asian women might, might like and might, might, uh, feel is important to collect. And also, I think the education part of it was something that I bring to the table, just being able to explain and tell them about the history of jewelry, which I think not many people in Asia are able to do as well. And one other thing about talking about specifically for women. So in the estate jewelry industry, for the most part, you're, you're, you kind of inherit it. A lot of people who are doing it tend to have had family that are in the business or, you know, might have partners that have been doing it for a long time. So it's actually, it's quite rare to see women in the jewelry industry, uh, the vintage especially, on their own sort of doing estate pieces. So there was a little bit of that, that trying to overcome the negative feedback or the fear of, of it not succeeding. And I think I was just so determined to like just do something different because I, I, I felt like 15 years is, is a long time and I'm, I'm back in Singapore and I really wanted to do something that I love back here. But tell us so, about the common myths that people have about vintage jewelry. Mm, yeah, so I, I often um, get people texting us or calling us and saying, oh, I have this piece from my grandmother and it must be like 100 years old. It's a, it's a little gold brooch. And, and so people think that things which are over 100 years old or really old have a lot of value. They feel like it, it must be because it's something so rare that it survived. But the truth is, there are also a lot of mass-produced pieces that were done in the Victorian period. So not everything that is very old has value or, or has a, a high value. And that's one of the common I think, uh, misconceptions about jewellery. And, and I think that also sometimes people feel like, oh, you, that there should always be a, a provenance with something that is old, like you know, who, who used to own it. But not every piece would have a history or, or a provenance because sometimes along the way, um, clients... Yeah, exactly. And, or, or the family doesn't want people to know that they've sold. So you don't know because it's, it's never been revealed like who, who actually used to have it. Well, I've always felt a little bit at an advantage bidding in Asia because so many people here mm. see secondhand as bad. Yes. So they, they don't <laughs> want to buy something through auction because they feel like it's it's previously owned, so it's mm. bad luck. I think that yeah. has changed over the last decade. Mm. But is that something you've had to help bring people along? Yes, definitely. I, I When I started the business, there was a lot of people who, who would come through and say, oh, who used to own this? You know, what, what what's the uh, the story behind it? Or or did she have a good life? You know, and, and I think that there were also many people who came through and said, oh, I, I would never buy secondhand. And yeah, I, I guess a lot of people feel like there's a stigma. It's like as if I can't afford to buy a new piece, you know, why would I want to buy, you know, something that's secondhand? But that has changed. I think a lot of social media and the auction houses or even the heritage departments of like Van Cleef and Cartier has played a very big part in how people see jewellery today in, in, in terms of secondary market. And there's so much value, I feel, in, in terms of craftsmanship, design, 
Um, so desirable. There's a lot of very desirable vintage pieces, secondary secondary market pieces that we we don't often get to see here, but um, but that's changing. Yes, and there are pieces too that you just can't get anymore. That's right. Yeah, uh, one I, of a kind. Yeah, yeah, I have a gold purse uh, mm. from uh, VCA. And they don't make them anymore. Beautiful. Yes, it is. And absolutely. I, yeah. I guess I got it <laughs> maybe 15 years ago mm-hmm. for a good price. Mm-hmm. And because I have two daughters, I was thinking maybe I should have one more so they can each have one. And when I looked, they're, they're, they're none to be had. None of the auction houses were selling them, signed VCA. Mm-hmm. And then there was one on first dibs. And it was about five times what I'd paid for it. So sometimes mm-hmm. you're buying the second hand or the old or the antique or the vintage because you just can't get it anymore because mm-hmm. they, they aren't making the gold bags anymore. Yeah. Or you have Absolutely. the pieces from Art Deco, Art Nouveau, these periods of, of style which had such craftsmanship mm-hmm. yep. that I just find you don't get. Yeah. And Absolutely. the contemporary, like the contemporary Van Cleef ballerina today <laughs> versus the one from 50 years ago. Yeah. Very different. I would absolutely agree. Yeah, I, I I feel like there is such a just little nuances, right? I mean, you you look at it and you you can't really tell, but once you put it in your hand and you look at the details, you you can really sort of feel the finesse a little bit in in the older pieces or the way that they've designed it. Certainly. Well, do, yeah. do you try to have affordable pieces available? At Revival Jewel, at your place? I really do. I I, I feel like I, it's certainly something that I, I try to make sure that we, we always have a, a selection of pieces that are like under $5,000. And I think it's not always easy because I, I, I think that I it has to tick all the right boxes as well in terms of quality, uh, in terms of desirability, wearability as well, the quality of the stone. So I think for me, um, you know, I do try to look for it, but it, it should still have all of the factors which I which I consider um, that makes it something that's that's worth to to keep in a collection. Is there an error that sells at the highest premium? I don't think that there is one. Like you could also find very high value things in the 1940s or 1950s. I think a lot of it depends. Which is what would be what, retro? Yeah, retro period. Yeah. I would say a lot of it depends on intrinsic value as well, uh, whether or not it's signed, of course. But uh, for example, if you have like an Art Deco, Cartier, um, cashmere sapphire, you know, and diamond bracelet or tutti frutti Cartier piece. I think um, those definitely do command a premium because of intrinsic value along with the design and the name. So I would say because of what intrinsically there in terms of the stones and, and, and the type of stones that are used generally would be Art Deco, but not always the case. I yeah. love Art Deco, but I really like retro too. Mm. Is is there value in buying something that's not signed because you don't have to pay that extra premium? Definitely. It, it, I've, I've had many pieces that are unsigned that have come through that are so beautiful, wonderfully made that without any signature, but for what its intrinsic value or the or the craftsmanship that's involved, you don't pay the premium and you have a wonderful piece of jewelry. And I, I've had many of these pieces that have also increased in value over time because of the way that uh, you know the amount of diamonds that have added up to it, or or just the the, the type of craftsmanship um, that can't be you know replicated. Um, so unsigned pieces, I, I've we've handled a lot through revival, and so I I, I think the the key is knowing prices. I think knowing how well to buy it for, how to calculate 
value in a piece that is unsigned and and knowing in terms of the design and and craftsmanship all of those things do add up to mm-hmm. a certain value for yeah. even for unsigned pieces because as a buyer if there's a new piece that comes out mm. and you want to have it mm. your only option is to go to the store and buy it but if you are buying a diamond and you're going to buy a two carat diamond. Mm. That diamond at auction, if it's got the GIA <laughs> cert, is the exact same diamond that you're paying a premium for in the very fancy store. Mm. And especially if it has a simple setting, yeah. you're much better off to buy I mean, the diamond cost-wise at auction. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I I would say I would say that you know the especially you, if it's signed. Uh, well, yes, I would say also that. <laughs> To remember that there, there is also a commission. So some people do get carried away. Mm-hmm. I think at auction, there's also that moment when you get like, oh, I really love it and I want to go for it. And you and you tend to forget that, wait, there's another 26% that you have to add on top of it. So yes, buying at auction can be great. You do get good bargains sometimes, but it's really just you know being aware of when to stop um, doing your homework because there, there have also been times when I've bought in in certain auction houses and I and I feel like maybe they were not as stringent in terms of, you know, the condition reports or or they were not as careful. So yes, and just to be aware, I would say that it isn't always the case um, because there have also been instances where I find certain things selling more than at retail price, That's you know, for signed pieces. Yeah. <laughs> the part about doing your homework is so important yeah. because there are times when you can f- see something at auction. Yeah. By the time you put the commission in, they're yeah. actually paying more than if they'd gone and bought it at retail. <laughs> I know. Or about the same, right? So Which do is like... your homework for sure. Know <laughs> yeah. what you're doing when and you get And don't get into carried this. away. Yes. And, and one thing you might do is to actually put in a written bid because then you know what your commission's going to be. And if you Mm. get it, great. And if you don't, that's fine too. But if you're on the phone or if you're there in person, I think you're much more likely to get taken away and swept away. (laughs) Yeah. We hear a lot of talk about recession right now. Mm. And I wonder if gems and jewelry are a good hedge or store of value. Mm. Definitely. Definitely. I think having having worked through Christie's through the Asian financial crisis, the dot-com bubble, there was post 9-11, I think, and the recession in 07, 08, 2007, 2008. You know, I remember all the conversations we've had in the department and, and, um, and sort of talking about how we're going to readjust and but when we when we look at look back at, at the auctions and the and the prices that were achieved back then. Um, and what they're worth today, there's definitely good opportunities. I would say they they definitely hold their value well. And um, if you're able to, uh, when there's a downturn, you know, keep an eye out for good value things. And there's definitely, you know, when you buy correctly, I think that's also very important, knowing the right price to buy it at, the kind of things that you should be buying, um, you know, then holding value definitely, yeah. As people start to build a jewelry collection, do they do they need to think about having certain things in it or should they just buy what they love? I would say buy what you love, first of all. And then, you know, as you have a bit more, I think it's good to always re-look at the collection. And because I think that as we grow older too, your tastes change and you some things that you loved before you might not now. Um, it's always good to reassess and sort of look at it as a whole. And I sometimes tell my clients, you know, just look at Ellen Barkin's collection and, and you know, and sort of have give yourself some inspiration of how you'd like your catalog to look. Eventually, if you had to sell everything, like think about what your ideal collection is going to look like and then sort of slowly work of that, like mm, there will definitely be pieces that you might 
feel, you know, isn't so you anymore and, you know, you can always sell that and then get something else that, that fits in in line with, um, with the collection. It's interesting when you talk about how our tastes change because when I first moved to Singapore in 2007, I saw so much jade here, so mm. much more jade than I ever saw in New York. Yeah. And I remember saying, I will not wear jade. Jade is for old women. <laughs> I, I mean, I... Jade is not for me. Mm. And then a few years later, I tried on the most beautiful jade ring and earrings. And when I put them on, like the hair on my arm stood up and I felt <laughs> like a princess. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love this jade. And then it was lavender jade. You know, mm. I mean, no, I, I adore jade. And mm. I, I do think that there are so many designs now which aren't old, mm. which are much more contemporary, which are even classic that don't have that kind of... Um, look of the old days. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we do change and we do evolve. And Absolutely. now I'm a jade lover and I, <laughs> I swore I never would be. I love jade. I, I feel like, yeah, there's, there's definitely, I love, the, I love it when I hear clients say, I put it on and I have goosebumps because mm -hmm. it's when you really know, I think that it's something quite special and that you connect with. Mm -hmm. I remember putting it on saying, I don't want to take this off. And they were like, <laughs> Paige, you have to give it back. <laughs> so in your line of work where you're constantly hunting for collectors' treasures and these vintage jewels, mm. are there any insights or stories that you can share with us that people might be surprised by? Mm. So I think lately there's been some cases of synthetic diamonds um, being cut to fit into the size of a, of a GIA certificate. This I heard from a local lab where um, maybe there was you know, a, an older certificate that had the same measurements, but it turned out to be a synthetic diamond. So definitely, you know, keep a lookout for, it, it doesn't happen often, just to say this is, of course, quite rare, but still um, something which one should be aware of. And which is also part of the reason why by the time you hit 2025, I think they want all GIA certificates to be digital. So um, you'll have a little card with a QR code with the diamond that you buy, everything is going to be online. You have to, you, you can get your certs on a GIA app altogether. And they're going to have a, a, a type of machine that, that's AI powered where you can authenticate um, the laser inscription on the stone where they can actually identify if the, the laser inscription as well as the stone. Personally, for me, is is, is quite, in, quite important. It, it does worry me a bit about where we're going. And, and I, I'm glad that at least in Singapore, we're, we're trying to, you know, push forward in that direction as well to make everybody more aware. But yes, uh, vintage is definitely, I would say, a very good way to, to consume. And I know you have the passion for what you do, but we're living in a world where there's so many people struggling. Mm. And how do you make peace with the fact that you work in an industry that is pure luxury? Yeah, I, I really love this question because... I did have a really hard time, I think, especially through COVID. It did make me think a lot about, you know, what we're doing and, and you know, how can all of this still be relevant? So I feel uh, during COVID period, we, we in 2020, we donated a, a good portion of our profits to social services charities here in Singapore. So at the end of the year, normally we, we might do um, uh, sort of gift baskets to, to clients. And instead of that, we, we decided that we would... Um, donate the money to charity. And in 2021, we did a, a, a donation, a larger donation to uh, Beyond Social Services when we had a collection of jewellery come through a client who came into it through, through an estate. So all of the money, um, the proceeds from that went to charity. Well, you also outside. mentioned that several 
clients came to you during COVID. They yes. wanted to buy something <laughs> for their significant other. Yes. Because everybody was kind of at a low. Yes. And, and I'm actually told that jewelry sales during COVID went through the roof. Yes. I mean, even online. <laughs> People, I guess, were just trying to seek some solace that way. Yeah, absolutely. That we we did have I think it was it was amazing for me as well to to be a part of that because there were clients who were who were, you know, had, being very frazzled at home together with with children and and sort of juggling so many things at the same time. So Mother's Day, birthdays, anniversaries, we did get quite a few calls to say, you know, I really need to to try and find something special and um and so that's the great thing about what we do and I feel uh, you know just marking milestones. And, and that's quite a crazy milestone to go through COVID. And I think that the meaning that, that you associate with, with each piece of jewelry as you buy it and the, and the milestones that you're marking really is for me what makes what we do a lot more special than just consuming for the sake of consuming. Could you tell us the habits that you think lead to success? For me, I, I feel that Knowledge, of course, is very important and, and having um, it being sort of trying to to learn as much as you can in the special speciality that you're in. Ability to sort of pivot is, is important, knowing when that you should when you should change and try to do some things differently. Working hard, of course, building the right relationships, I suppose. And those are the things which I feel really did make a difference for me. Do you consider yourself a success? I if I think about where we are and where we in being revival when we started and and um, and where we are now, I should say that we are a success because of what we've done and and how we've helped people here in Asia look at jewelry differently. But um, I also feel like there's still a lot more to do, and and there's so much more that I have to to learn, and I and I that I can do better in 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 the way that I'm running the business or. Um, the way that I'm, I'm dealing with clients, I, I feel like there's there's still a lot of room for improvement. And I think the important thing is also to be called, to, to for me at least, to say that I'm a success. I should have a, a very balanced work-life balance and that I should be able to give back a lot more than I'm taking. And I, I think I, I'm working towards that. I'm not quite there yet, but um, I would only call myself a success when I can really get to that point. If you could choose a single piece of jewelry to own, oh, what would it be? Tough one. <laughs> <laughs> it's so difficult to choose just one. I, 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 I don't think I can choose just one. But I, I, I would say the ones which have some meaning to it. So it could be a presents that were given to me for my fiftieth birthday from my family. It's a bulgari ring or something that I, I, I feel that marks certain milestones. So also Cartier. Uh, I have a, a pair of Cartier brooches that I bought when my nieces were born. Those things definitely I would want to always keep with me. And, um, and then pass them on to your nieces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there's a lot. I mean, of course, I would love to have, you know, some beautiful pieces, Art Deco or Egyptian Revival or much more important things. But I think the meaning that comes with jewelry for me is a lot more important. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> your top three favorite jewelry designers, your top three personally, and then the top three for a collector. Oof. <laughs> I think um, uh, for me, I love Rene Bauvin, uh, Bel Suzanne Belperon, um, La Cloche. Uh, those are sort of, I would say, it's very hard to find jewelry from them that I 
don't like. Oh, and then I wanted to say also for contemporary jewelry, the contemporary, I, I, I love Hammerlake, uh, Bagat and Van Cleef and Appels. For a collector, I really feel like it should be something that's individual. I I, I don't feel like like a must have this because there's so many that you should have that you you should have Van Cleef or or um, Cartier pieces, Bulgari. Um, but you know even the Boivins, Belperon, uh, Sterlet is great too. I love Pierre Sterlet. It really depends, and and not to say that those brands are always you know like everything from them is 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 fantastic. So it's there's definitely pieces that are better than others. And I feel like it really depends on the person. That could mean it may suit me, but it may not suit them. And um, which gemstone yeah. gemstone represents you best? I say a diamond in the rough. I think that would be me. <laughs> you seem pretty polished. <laughs> <laughs> but deep down inside it it feels that way for me. I feel like I I could still there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> and is there a gemstone that you think represents me best? I think of you as like a Burmese ruby, sort of bright and beautiful wow. and, you know, uh, and lucky, red being a lucky color. And for the listeners out there, your uh, shop, is it open or by appointment for those people who are interested in vintage pieces? We're by appointment because very small team. It's just myself and, and Catherine and I travel quite a bit to source. And, um, and because of that, we, it's best to make an appointment because we're not always around. And you're on IG? I am on Instagram, yes. Revival and Jewels. Revival Jewels. <laughs> and when you do the sourcing, are you buying or are you consigning? I have both. I think for the moment, we're most most of what we have right now, we own. Uh, we have a small percentage that's on consignment. But yeah, we, we work on both scenarios. It really depends on the piece. Do you have a question for me before we close? I do. Um, I'm wondering, what is your favorite jewelry that Jim has given you? I'm fortunate because my husband is a very good gifter mm. and he's very thoughtful that way. And he also believes that gemstones are a good commodity investment. Mm. And I would tell you that many of the stones I've bought, uh, I think that my return on investment have been better than some of his uh, plays. <laughs> but the meaning, you talked about the meaning. Mm. It's the, the meaning that goes along with the pieces. Mm. And when we met... He started giving me gold sovereigns, mm. which is uh, a British gold coin. And from 1968, the year I was born. And after a while, I had so many of these gold sovereigns. I thought, what in the world am I going to do with all these sovereigns? And so he said, let's make a necklace. So we had the sovereigns. That, the necklace has 10. I think the bracelet has eight. And they have diamonds around each coin. And it's set in gold. And it's just, and it's pretty functional and wearable. Uh, and so I, I really love the necklace and the bracelet. And then once we had two daughters, my husband said, we need bracelets for them and bracelets and necklaces for them too. <laughs> so that when they turn 21, they can have it. So he's very thoughtful that way. And I think I having that, spent yeah. time in England being educated and the gold sovereign is actually the most beautiful coin. Mm -hmm. If you have a, a US coin or even the Chinese, they're much bigger at one ounce. And so the sovereign's a tiny bit more delicate. Mm. So I think that one probably is the one I wear most. Um, and yeah, the one that, one that has, has great, great meaning for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap? I guess last question for you would be, how are you going to, to split your jewelry between B and Hilton? Have you, have you planned out your, your 
strategy. <laughs> well, today I'm wearing an absolutely beautiful brooch, uh, which is a bee. It's a bee brooch. And I have, I never realized until I had a daughter bee, how many jewelry houses make bees. <laughs> and so I have quite a bit of uh, bees of my collection. So obviously mm -hmm. all of the bees will go to, to my daughter bee. Mm -hmm. And Hilton always says, that's great. I can get everything else. <laughs> said, oh, so many bees. of the stones obviously don't have bees. <laughs> One of my friends told me early on, don't save your jewelry. Don't save your bags thinking that you're going to keep them in good tissue condition for the future. They, he said, they're probably just going to end up selling it all at auction. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, let's hope me. not. Woe is me. <laughs> Best advice to pass the power onto our listeners, Brenda? Mm, um, I would say, don't be afraid of, of a challenge. Um, you know, believe in yourself. And I'm the perfect example. There was a lot of negativity, um, when I tried to start the business at the beginning, but you really believe in, what you do and what you love. I think that's that's already half the battle won. You know, not be afraid to reach out. And I think what you're doing here on your podcast is great as well to to try and, you know, gain in a lot of knowledge and be able to to speak to as many people as you can to to try and um, don't be afraid to get, get that knowledge from, from, from other people who might have gone through it. Yeah. And one last question for you. Those people listening who don't know the names that we're dropping, mm. who don't have what they, you know, a collection of jewelry uh, and they, and they want to, to learn, is there a, a website? Is there a book? Is there a way for people who are interested in vintage jewelry to learn? Sure. They can definitely give me a call. Um, I think on our website, we have a, we have a blog page where we talk a lot about these designers we've mentioned today. And I think another book that's quite good, that's all encompassing is called Understanding Jewelry. It's by David Bennett and Daniela Machetti. That's a good place to start for vintage jewelry because it really does cover jewelry history and has a lot of uh, photos. So, you know, you really do get a good overview. So that's a good place to start. Thank you, Brenda, for helping us understand jewelry. <laughs> we loved having you. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. That wraps another fascinating conversation to offer food for thought and a different perspective and inspire you to live life fully, professionally and personally. Hopefully you'll appreciate the tangible takeaways and meaningful stories. Message me on Instagram at I am Paige Parker and let me know how we can do this better. As always, thank you for listening as together we pass the power. <laughs>